Well, good morning, everybody. We're glad you're here. Happy Mother's Day. Um, thanks for coming on this Mother's Day. If, uh, if you just now in the last three seconds realized it was Mother's Day and you wanna skip my sermon, go call your mom. I'm totally cool with that. Um, we're glad you're here. You open up your Bible to the book of 1 Peter chapter two. We're gonna be in verse seven today. We're continuing through the text together. We go verse by verse as a church. But um, so one, I wanted to say happy birthday, or not happy birthday, happy Mother's Day. It's not any, my birthday, it's probably somebody's birthday. And um, <clears throat> I'm tired, this is my second time to preach today. And, um, and also, it's been a long week. Just wanna share this with you in case my sermon just stinks. Um, I had something happen to me Wednesday that in 22 years of ministry has never happened before. I'm a transcript guy. I write down all of my sermon. It's about eight pages, just about 3,200 words, and I, and I spend the rest of the week memorizing it. But the hardest part of my sermon prep is that first day where I just spend all day writing it down. It's like writing a term paper every week. And um, <clears throat> I got to the end of the day, it was done. It's always a great feeling when you've written that last page, and at that point, you're just tweaking stuff. And right when I got done, my computer seized up, it locked up, and I lost the whole thing. First time it's ever happened in 22 years. Um, I called the IT people, bawling uncontrollably, please help me, and they couldn't, it was gone. And so I sat there and I thought to myself, I'm retiring. I'm retiring from the ministry and um, either that or becoming a serial killer. But I didn't do either one and I just got up the next morning and rewrote it. So anyway, a little behind on this thing. So, so give me grace. But um, here's where we're at. We talked about last week where Peter makes the statement that Jesus is the cornerstone. He calls him the cornerstone. He uses kind of a housing building reference. And his point is that Jesus is the only rock that is able and worthy to carry the weight of our hope, to carry the weight of our lives, to carry the weight of our eternities. He is the cornerstone. He's the only one worthy or able to carry that weight of us. And then what he does this week, as he kind of transitions, he talks to non-believers for a second, which I'll address, and then he stops and he starts talking to believers. And he says, for those of you who have put your faith and your trust into the cornerstone of Jesus, those of you who have laid your lives on the cornerstone of Jesus, he starts talking about um, our identity in Christ. In other words, he start, he, he's basically saying, look, the fact that you have trusted in Jesus as your corner, cornerstone, there are some now new realities about who you are as a person that defines you. And so he's gonna be talking about our identity in Christ. Now, before I jump into the text, <clears throat> excuse me, I wanna talk about what I mean when I talk about your identity. What does that mean when I talk about your identity? Well, the definition of the word identity is pretty simple. It's just the fact of being who or what a person is. The fact of being who or what a person is, that's your identity. And so if I came to you and I asked you the question, hey, what's your identity? How would you answer that question? I mean, think about it for a second. What would you say? What would be the first thing you said? If I ask you, what's your identity? I think a lot of people would probably talk about maybe first, if they're describing their identity, what they do kind of how they spend most of their time. How do you say, well, I'm a businessman, I'm a businesswoman, um, I'm a doctor, I'm a lawyer, I'm a teacher, I'm a, I'm a coach, I'm a, I'm a mother. You would talk about how you spend your time if you think about what defines you as a person. <clears throat> Excuse me, I think a lot of people talk about their, um, when thinking about their identity, they think about their race. People might say, well, I'm an African-American or I'm an Asian or I'm Latino. They talk about that in terms of their identity. Other people, when, when they're describing their identity, who they are as a person, they think about their personality. I hear people say a lot, well, I'm an artist, 
or I'm an athlete, or I'm an academic. Um, some people put, might say, I'm, a, I'm an extrovert, or I'm an introvert. There's a lot of things that when we think about our identity, we think about, but what Peter does in these verses is he talks about, for, for you and me who are believers, he says, for those of us who have laid our lives on the cornerstone of Christ, you and I now have a new identity. We have a, something else that transcends our personality. It transcends our race. It transcends what we do for a living. And it now defines us more than any other thing in our lives. And so that's what we're doing today in our sermon. Number one, my hope for you is that you'd walk out of here and you'd know what your identity is in Christ. And two, not only would you know what your identity is, but that you would start looking at yourself and thinking about yourself and viewing yourself in terms of your new identity in Christ. And then lastly, that your life would actually start being an overflow of this new identity in Jesus. And so let's look at verse seven. He's gonna talk about our new identity, but he addresses non-believers first. This is after he said, Christ is a cornerstone that will not disappoint you. Look at verse seven. Verse seven, he says, this, pre- this is precious value then, talking about Jesus being the cornerstone then, is for you who believe, right? He's saying for those of us who believe, the fact that Jesus is the cornerstone, precious value. Then he, he talks to non-believers. He says, but those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone. <clears throat> In other words, Jesus is the cornerstone whether you believe him or not. That's what Peter just said. Jesus is the cornerstone whether you believe he is or not. And then he goes on in verse eight, and he watch what he says about Jesus. He says, he is a stone of stumbling. This is for the non-believer. He is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. He's a stone of stumbling. And he's a rock of offense. And so Peter's saying for the believers, Jesus is the cornerstone. But for those who disbelieve, that cornerstone becomes a stone of stumbling or a rock of offense. Now, what does he mean when he says that? <clears throat> well, here's what he means. When a person hears the gospel of Jesus, right? When a person hears the gospel of Jesus, when a person hears the truth and the message that God came to this planet, he took on our flesh, he lived a perfect life, he never sinned, he died on a Roman cross, paying the penalty for our sin, rose three days later from the grave, conquering death so that we can be reconciled back into a relationship with God, completely forgiven. When a person encounters that message, When they hear that message, they're gonna respond in one of two ways. One, they're going to lay their lives upon that message. They're going to entrust themselves onto that cornerstone message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Or what Peter's saying is they're gonna stumble over it. They're gonna stumble over that message. In other words, what Peter's teaching us here is that Jesus is the singular cornerstone. He's the only one that won't disappoint and you can't walk around him. You can't take or leave Jesus. You can't can't walk around the cornerstone. You can't step over the cornerstone. You can't ignore the cornerstone. You either lay your life upon it or you stumble over it, which leads to your destruction. And so Peter's saying that for the, for the disbeliever, for the non-believer, Jesus becomes a, a, a rock or a stone of stumbling, right? And then the other thing he says is that for non-believers, Jesus is a rock of offense. What does he mean by that? He's a rock of offense. <clears throat> Have you ever noticed that people love what Jesus has to say until he either gets really demanding or really exclusive, 
which he often does. And then all of a sudden they don't like what he says anymore. And they reject him. And if you just take one of the teachings of Jesus, love your enemies, that is a statement that people that do not even believe in Christ as our savior, they will embrace that message. You'll hear non-believers quoting that all the time, love your enemies. They'll hear that and they'll go, man, Jesus is right on the money. We need to do that. That's a wise guy. They'll embrace it. They'll even, they'll even quote it and, and live it out in their lives. But the same person that would hear a teaching of Jesus, love your enemies and go, yeah, right on, I applaud that. When they hear Jesus say things like, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life, and nobody comes to the Father except through me, then that same person that embraced the one teaching of Jesus will all of a sudden say, now wait a minute. You're telling me that the only way that I or anybody else can go to heaven is through the person of Jesus. And Jesus says, yeah, that's right, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life, nobody comes to the Father except through me, and they say, I don't know about all that. That seems a little exclusive to me. I don't know how loving that is, and they get offended, and they walk away. It's all through the scripture, and it's all through the culture. Jesus, for the non-believer, becomes a stone of, of, of offense, and they stumble over him, okay? And that's what Peter says. And so once he does that, he, he goes on. Let's look at verse eight one last time. He says that he's a stone of stumbling and he's a rock of offense. Now what he does next, and I'm not gonna talk about this hardly at all, but, it, but he gives the evidence that someone is stumbling over the cornerstone. He says he's a, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense for they stumble because they are disobedient to the word and to this doom they were also appointed. All in the world that that means is that the evidence that you have not laid your life on the cornerstone of Christ, but you've stumbled over the cornerstone of Christ is there is an active, ongoing rebellion and disobedience to the word of God. That's the evidence that that's the case. It results in a person's doom and none of it takes God by surprise. Okay, that's all he's saying in verse eight. Now, <clears throat> in verse nine, what Peter does is he transitions now from non-believers. He starts talking to you. He starts talking to me. And what he's gonna do is he's gonna turn, he's gonna start talking about who we are in Jesus. He's talking about our new identity in Christ. And what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna read these. I'm gonna, he's got three or four of them that he does. I'm gonna walk through each one of them really, really fast today. I'm gonna tell you why it matters and then we're gonna be done. So let's read this in verse nine. Peter talked, he's talking to believers now. We know that because he says, but you. In verse nine he says, but you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, verse 10, for you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy mercy. Okay, church, more than your job, more than your gender, more than your personality, more than your race, more than how you spend your time, that is your identity if you are a believer in Christ Jesus. All right, now let's look at the first one. Let's see what he says. Look at the first thing he says in verse nine. This is your new identity in Christ. He says, but you are a chosen race. That's the first aspect of your new identity and my new identity is that you and I in Christ are a chosen Race, and what does that mean? Well, what he's doing is he's making reference here to the Israelites. 
He's talking about the Israelites. And the Israelites, what we know about them biblically, and I'll show you in a second, but the Israelites were a race of people that God looked at and he handpicked them out of all the nations in all of the world to be his people. He looked at them and he chose them. He chose them and then he set his love upon them, specifically them, so that they would be a people that loved him and served him forever. Now, and don't turn there, Deuteronomy chapter seven, verse six, this is God speaking. I want you to listen to the language of choosing that he uses in regards to the Israelites. This is God speaking in verse six. He says, for you are a holy people, speaking Old Testament Israelites, you're a holy people to the Lord, your God. The Lord, your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any other peoples, but for, for you were the fewest of all the peoples. But because uh, the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore with his forefathers, the Lord brought you out of, with a mighty hand and redeemed you, the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh. Uh, that's a very telling verse, Austin Stone, about how God works in regards to his people then and today. Could God chose the Israelites. He handpicked the Israelites, not because they were this huge nation. It was quite the opposite. He chose them because of their weakness. And then the scripture says, God said rather, he, he put his, he set his love upon them so that they would serve him all the days of their lives. What happened? God chose them, set them apart, made them holy, set his love on them so that the Messiah would be raised up through them so that Jesus, the savior of the world, would come through their lights. But what happened? When the Messiah finally came, the Israelites rejected him. They said, God, we don't want your Messiah. We don't believe that you're gonna save the world through some backwoods carpenter named Jesus. They rejected God's plan. And so what we know biblically, listen carefully, what we know biblically is that God in his sovereign plan took the message of the Messiah, he took the message of Jesus, not just to the, the Jews, but beyond the Jews to the Gentiles, which are you and me. And so what Peter is saying here, listen carefully, is that there is another, there is another chosen people of God, chosen. There is another chosen people of God and it's you and it's me. In 1 Thessalonians 1, 2, listen, this is Paul, New Testament, talking about us and the church and God's choice of us. In verse two, he says, we give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith, your labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus and the presence of God and Father. And look at verse four, he goes, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. Unbelievable. He says, I'm seeing all these amazing things and, and I'm thankful for you. And he goes, I want you to understand something. You are my brother and you are beloved of God and I don't want you to ever forget his choice of you. What an amazing thing to consider that if you're here today, if you're sitting in a chair today and you, you're actually a person that has set your hope and your faith and your life and your eternity on the cornerstone of Jesus, you have done that, you have that position because of all the people in the world, God chose you to be his. Just like the Israelites, he handpicked you and then he set his love upon you so that you would love him and serve him and walk with him all the days of your life. 
And one of the one of the ways to think about it, honestly, <coughs> is, is like adoption. Have you ever wondered why the Bible, when it's talking about our relationship with God, it always talks about the fact that he adopted us. Have you ever wondered why that's the case? All through the scripture, when, it, when, when the Bible's referencing your salvation and my salvation, it says that God adopts us. Well, here's one of the reasons that that's the case. Okay, when it, it, it's Mother's Day here, so moms, you can relate to this. If, if you have a biological child, it's a biological child, you did not choose that child. You chose to have a child, but you did not choose that child. He, he or she was just born into the family, and you just got what you got, and you can't send them back, right? I mean, you didn't choose that kid. He just came screaming into the world, right? But when you adopt a child, in a very, very real way, you walk into an orphanage, and you choose that child, I have friends that adopted kids from Haiti in a very real way. They, they walked into an orphanage in Haiti and they saw the child standing there and they chose the child. Out of all the children in the world, they looked at this one child and they said, I want you to be my son. I want you to be my daughter. And that is what God did with you and me. It screams it from the scripture is that God walks into the orphanage of our sin and he looks at you and he set his love on you and he said, I want you to be my son. I want you to be my daughter. And that's what Peter's saying. He's saying, look, the first thing you need to understand about your identity, about who you are in Jesus, that, that, is, that is a greater definition of who you are than any other thing. He said, you are a chosen race. Now look at verse nine, continue. He says, but you're a chosen race. And then he says, you're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation, a people of God's own possession. I'm gonna combine those three because they're always combined in the Old Testament. The second thing Peter says, this is what you need to know about your identity is that you are a royal priesthood. Now what in the world does that mean? That you and I now are a royal priesthood priesthood. Well, here's the thing. He's making reference again to the Israelites in the Old Testament. Don't turn there. Exodus chapter 19, verse five. It says, now then, this is God speaking. If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you will be my own possession among all the peoples. For all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me, listen, God says, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests a holy nation, these are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. You gotta understand that the Israelites were nobodies. <clears throat> they were slaves. They had no power, they had no wealth. And God comes into the picture, he handpicks them, he chooses them, sets his love on them, frees them from slavery, and he says, understand something, you are no longer a slave, but you are my people, and because of that, you're gonna be a kingdom of priests. You're gonna be a holy nation, a people from my own possession. And what Peter's doing, making reference back to that, is he's looking at us in the church all these years later, and he says, now church, that's what you are. You're not just some guy that goes to work every morning. You're not just some woman that goes to work every morning. You're not, you, you are not defined any longer most by what you do. You're defined by who you are in Christ. And Peter says, you and me, we are a royal priesthood. Now, what does he mean when he says that? That we're a royal priesthood. I wanna kind of focus on that one because it's really cool. A royal priesthood means this. Back in the day, a 
a king would have a special set of priests that were kind of his, for lack of better words, his personal priests, and they were called the royal priests. And they were just any priest, they were royal priests because they had special access to the king. And there were two specific things that these royal priests did. Number one, they served directly in the presence of the king. These royal priests, they didn't have some other place where they did their priestly duties. They did them in the very presence of the king. These uh, royal priests, they also did this. They helped the king reign. They helped the king rule the kingdom. And so what is Peter saying? What's he insinuating when he says, hey, you need to understand something, church. Now, not only you're a chosen race, but you are a royal priesthood. What's he saying? Well, there's two implications. What it means that you're a royal priesthood, there's an implication right now and there's an implication for the future. What does it mean right now that you as a Christian are are a royal priest? Here's what it means. Have you ever uh, heard the term priesthood of all believers? Well, in Christianity, in Christianity, there is no longer a distinction between this class of priests who have access to God and then the normal people like us who don't have access to God. That's not how it is in, in Christianity. We know that when we got saved, we received the Holy Spirit, which means the presence of God lives in every single one of us. And because the presence of God is no longer separated from us, every one of us has access to the presence of God and therefore, we, every one of us who is a Christian is called to minister to and minister for the Lord. It's the priesthood of all believers. And so when Peter says, hey, you need to remember, you are a royal priesthood, that means you walk out these doors, you, you have access to the, to the king, and you serve and minister to the king and for the king, and you do it right now. It's your identity. But then there's a future implication of this. And I think Peter's probably more direct, uh, directly addressing our future implication, and this is really, really cool. <clears throat> and I think he's talking about, when I say future implication, I think he's talking about our role in the new earth, the new heavens and the new earth. All right, theology question here. Don't shout it out, but what's gonna happen when you die? What happens when you die if you're in Christ? Scripture says that when you, uh, if you're in Christ Jesus, you laid your life on the cornerstone, when you're absent with the body, you're gonna be present with the Lord. You'll immediately go to be with the presence of the Lord in heaven, right? But then, let's say that happens 60 years from now. And let's just say 100 years from now, Jesus comes back, like he returns a second time. What's gonna happen when Jesus returns? Well, all the people that are alive when Jesus returns and all the people who have died in Christ are gonna meet him in the air, which is gonna be awesome. And, and then we, we know that the Lord creates a new heaven and a new earth. A new heaven and a new earth. And we spend eternity with the Lord on the new earth. We're not gonna spend eternity um, hanging out in a cloud playing a harp with some naked baby angels. That's not what we're doing forever. We spend eternity on a new earth. Now I want you to listen to Revelation chapter five. About, this is all through Revelation, by the way. But listen to Revelation chapter five and watch what you and I are gonna be doing on this new earth. Check it out. <laughs> Revelation 5, 9. It says, and they, that they is is us. And they sang a new song, saying, worthy are you to take the book, talking to Jesus, we're singing to Jesus here. Worthy are you to take the book and break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, 
men from every tribe and every tongue and people and nation. I don't know what the melody is of that song, but here's what the song just said. We're gonna be in heaven. We're gonna be singing to Jesus. Worthy is the lamb who was slain because through your blood, you purchased for yourself from every tribe and every nation and every tongue a people of God. And then watch what it says next. It tells us what what all of us are gonna be doing in verse 10. We're singing this. We sing, you have made them, that's us, you have made them to be a kingdom of priests to our God and they will reign upon the earth. Peter's saying, this is your new identity. This is your new identity. You're a chosen race and you are a royal priesthood, which means you are going to spend eternity in the literal, physical presence of Almighty God, and you are going to reign with him forever. I have no idea what that means or what that's going to look like, but I'm going to go ahead and sign up for that one. Amen? Sounds pretty cool. All right, last one. Look back at the text, verse nine. So the last thing Peter says is our identity in Christ. He says, you're a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation, a people for God's own possession so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into marvelous light. I'm gonna talk about that next week because Peter starts talking about, okay, now that you know what your identity is, how do you live in light of your identity? That's the first thing he says. So you proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. Now look at verse 10, the last part of our identity. He says, for you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Okay, what Peter's saying here, and what he's describing, the third part of our identity, he's saying there is something you need to understand that's this kind of third aspect of who we are and our identity in Christ. There's this third thing that defines us as the people of God, and he simply says, you have, you're a person that has received, past tense, you've already received mercy. In other words, what Peter's saying is this is your identity in Christ. This is who you are. You are a person that has been completely forgiven of their sins. It's not an action just that happened to you. It's literally who you are as a person. Now listen, that's huge for people like me. Some of you need to hear that. It's not just some action that happened to you. Peter is saying that that is now your identity. You are a person and your title, your identity is you have received mercy. Here's why that's important because there's another thing that I've found. Y'all wanna know where I struggle? I'm about to tell you one of them. There's another thing that I've found that I have often allowed to define my identity. There's something that I found that besides my job, my personality, what I like to do, how I spend my time, I found that I've allowed this to affect the way I view myself and think about myself and define myself. And that's my sin. And that's my sin. Everybody's not like this, but but I am. I, I cognitively get, and even in my heart, I believe 
that I'm completely forgiven, but, but there's just something about the way that I view myself. I based my view of myself on how holy I've been or how holy I haven't been in the course of the last seven days. And if, and if I've been walking well with God, then I, then I, then I think more highly of myself and, and, I, and I think that God probably thinks more highly of me. But then if I haven't been walking well with God and I haven't been doing all the stuff that I should be doing, then I, then I don't think very highly of myself and I think pr- God's probably pretty frustrated with me. And so I vacillate between, oh, I'm doing pretty good and oh, I'm not doing very good. And so God probably doesn't think I'm doing very good either. And then even in the times I look back on my life where I've, I've walked consistently with Jesus and I've walked consistently in a pattern of holiness, the enemy, Satan, he's a liar. He is an accuser. That's what he does. And so he, he, he looks for folks that are walking well with Jesus and you're walking well with Jesus for like a long time and he'll walk up and whisper in your ear and think, oh, you think you're a good Christian? You think you're walking well with Jesus? Do you remember that thing you did back then? And I, I can be doing awesome for a long time and he'll remind me, you, you remember, you think you're a great Christian, great pastor, whatever, Matt, you remember that thing you did. I have this horrible problem with defining myself and thinking about myself not as somebody who has received mercy, past tense, but as somebody that's a sinner. And church, I want you to hear this. I want you to hear this, I'm almost done. What Peter is saying when he says that you were once a people that had not received mercy, but now you are a people that has received mercy. What he's saying, church, to you and me is that you and I in Christ Jesus are no longer defined whatsoever by our sin. Some of you need to hear that. Some of you need to embrace that. You need to hear that you as a Christian, are no longer defined by your sin. The thing you did in high school, it no longer defines you. The thing you, things you did in college, it no longer defines you anymore. Those things you wrestled with as a single, they no longer define you. The things that you're struggling with right now in your life, in Christ Jesus, they no longer define you. You know why? Because God does no longer even see your sin anymore. Some of y'all need to hear that. He didn't even see it. How dumb is it that we define ourselves by something he no longer even sees? And the reason that he no longer even sees it is because when he looks at us, he sees the blood of Jesus. And because of the blood of Jesus, he has already, past tense, taken our sin and cast them as far as the east is from the west. And so he doesn't see this person that sometimes does good and sometimes does bad. He just sees a beloved son or beloved daughter of the king. That's your new identity. That's your new identity. You're a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood. You're a beloved son or daughter with whom he's well pleased. Those aren't my words Those are the words of God to you. I'll end with this. I've thought a lot about this this week and how powerful words can be. Have you ever thought about how powerful words are? How how, how much power words have to define us, to impact the way we think about us, to impact the way we view ourselves and the way that we live Words hold so much power. 
and sway over our hearts and our minds. You know, y'all remember that old phrase, sticks and stones can break my bones, but words can never hurt me? That's the dumbest phrase in the English language. Absolutely, positively inaccurate. Every time I've ever broken a bone, they've healed. But I have things that people have said to me. As a 43-year-old man, I can't shake them. I had a, I had a family member of mine. <clears throat> Wasn't my dad, but somebody was like my dad, and I adored him, I still do. And he said something to me one time. I don't know why it stuck, but it stuck. And it, I learned this in counseling, it defined a lot of my life. He looked at me one time, I was probably nine or 10 years old, I was little. I don't remember the context. And he said, Matt, when you grow up, you're never gonna be anything more than a used car salesman. No offense to used car salesman, I like used car salesman. But he meant it in this really derogatory and demeaning way. And as a 10-year-old little kid, it crushed me. I desperately wanted that guy's approval, and it crushed me. And I made up my mind as a pretty little kid, I, I am going to do whatever it takes to prove to this man that I'm not a loser. I went to counseling for this <laughs> four or five years ago. And here's why I went to counseling. Here's why I went to therapy. Because it hit me that I don't know if I've accomplished in my life what I've accomplished by the grace of God because of this really pure motivation to serve Jesus or I've accomplished what I've accomplished in my life just to prove to that man that I'm not a failure. And I had to get to the bottom of that. Words stick. Words have incredible power to sway our lives. And in the same way, the, the way someone can speak something over you negatively can influence the way you view yourself, can influence your identity. In the same way, somebody can speak something over you that's incredibly positive and that can breathe life into you. Just a couple of months ago, back in February, um, let me tell you, I, I have this mentor, his name's Chris Osborne. He's my pastor in college and unbelievable preacher. Just preach me under the table. Preaches from the Greek New Testament from the stage, translates it while he's preaching. Awesome, expositional preacher, taught me to love God's word. Amazing guy, just large in life. I love him to death. And we've become friends kind of in my old age and he's mentored me and I just love this man. And I was preaching at the uh, text-driven preaching conference at Southwestern Seminary and I'm up in the big old tall wooden pulpit. I got a suit on, it's awesome. And I love pulpits, I wish we could do it. But um, I was preaching and I looked down over to the left and there was Chris Osborne, my mentor, was sitting there. And I thought, oh man, dear Lord, please don't let me stink, <laughs> you know? And I got finished and I was standing in there talking to some people and Chris walked up to me, had tears in his eyes. It is, you know him, he's, so, he's just type A man's man. His lip was quivering, he just could barely talk. He said, Matt, I, I just want you to know, it's one of the best sermons I've ever heard. And I'm so proud of the man that you've become. And he just turned around and walked off. And I'm a 43-year-old man, I just lost it. Just 
mess me up. Because I can't tell you the life that those words breathed into my soul. Look, church, here's the thing. If a family member can have that kind of sway over our hearts and minds, if Satan can have that kind of sway over our hearts and minds, and if a mentor can have that kind of sway over our hearts and minds, then how in the world do we not let God's words about us have that kind of sway with our hearts and our minds? Because guys, what the Bible, what Peter is standing up and screaming from the rooftops is I don't care what the world says about you and I don't care what you say about you. This is what God says about you. You're a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. You're a people after God's own possession. And you once were a people that had not received mercy, but now you are a people that has received mercy. That's your new identity. Believe it, embrace it, and let's go out these doors, let's walk in it. Let's pray. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, I just want you to do a couple of things. I just want you to think about if there's been anything in your life that you've allowed to define you more than what God says about you. You know, maybe it's not even a failure or a sin. Maybe it's, maybe it's a success. It's, and when you think about you, that's what you think about. This is God's words over your life. You are chosen. You are royal. And you are forgiven. You are chosen. You are his royal priesthood. And you are forgiven. It's who you are. Lord, I pray for your forgiveness in the times where I've defined myself on a thousand things, but the way you define me. I pray you'd give me a strength to believe your word more than I believe any other word about who I am. Jesus, if there's anyone in this room who has never put their faith and trust in Christ, if there's anybody in this room who's never laid their lives and their eternities on the cornerstone of Christ, I pray that right now, in the best way they know how they would do that, 
so that they would not stumble over the cornerstone. Jesus, we love you. Ask these things today in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, let's stand together.